Let's give a hand for the people that put that together. That was pretty neat. Yeah. <laughs> I say people generically, but it was Brian, our, our, uh, our newest person on staff. Uh, he was so creative and did such a good job with that. Uh, you can turn to Titus chapter 3 in your Bibles. We are going to continue on with our series uh, with Titus, and we're actually finishing the series. Today is the final day looking at Titus chapter 3. Um, you know, Paul wrote to Titus desiring to uh, train him up quickly, remind him of certain truths so that he would be ready for the ministry. Titus is a young pastor. He's a young man and he just got a new church job and it's on the island of Crete Sounds better than it was. Uh, very secular, very immoral island. It's a tough people group to try to minister to. And Titus goes to them, and Paul gives him this letter, and really it's a blueprint for us, uh, God's design for the church. What is the church uh, meant to be like? How are we supposed to function? You know, in the very beginning of the letter, it's like, listen, I, I left you here in Crete to set what remains in order. They have the gospel but they don't know how to do church. And so he gives them all these things, and now we finally make our way to uh, chapter 3. And thinking of the immorality of the Cretans that he was ministering to, you know, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts, lazy gluttons, you know, uh, this was not a good people. I, I went ahead and searched immorality and Newton. I looked up in Newton, and because of graduate school, it'll do this to you, I wanted a primary source uh, so I asked my kids. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, <clears throat> the FBI has a crime data explorer. A crime data, and it sounds so fun, explorer. It was not, it was discouraging. Um, but on there, you can look at the reported numbers, the crime statistics in the whole country, in the state of Kansas, in a county, Justin Newton. I did all that. I looked at Newton. I looked at Kansas. And uh, there was one uh, note that I want to share with you. I could not find one category of crime where there were zero offenses. Not one. Every crime that you can be convicted for, every offense that could be made, every category, uh, had numbers in it. Uh, for Kansas, for Newton, for... Uh, uh, for our county, and it just affirmed that we need God's direction, His guidance, His love. Our society needs our Creator's help. We need guidance, we need help, we need His love. And so um, it just so happens that that's, that's going to be what we are looking at today because not only do, does our society need it, but God has given us a blueprint for us. How are we supposed to be his ambassadors? How are we supposed to be his witnesses? How are we supposed to influence society? If, if you think about it, the world's not doing great right now. There's a lot of brokenness. How can we actually make a change in our community? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's exactly what Titus 3 is about. In this letter, Titus, uh, Paul tells Titus, and uh, gives him instructions, this is how I want you to be in your workplace. This is how I want you to be with your neighbors. This is how I want you to be with uh, the government. 
this is how I want you to be as a church for them on the island of Crete, for us in the world. This is how the church is supposed to act in the world so that we can actually influence the world for Christ. We can make a difference for Christ. Uh, and in chapter 3 of, of the letter of Titus, we're going to look at seven actions for the church to take. There are seven actions that we can take to influence our community. And I know seven's a lot, right? I bet you some of you, when you first got your bulletin, you're like, oh, it's Christmas time, I love this. And you turn to the back and you notice that there were seven points on the sermon outline. And you found out that I was preaching. And, and some of you aren't here anymore uh, because of that. But, but the rest of you faithful, you stayed, you knew. Seven's a lot, so here's the plan. Seven things are too many for us to consider in one sitting, right? Seven is too much. So this is what we're going to do. Two things, two parts to this plan. Part number one, as you're listening to these seven actions for us to take, pray that God would highlight one of them that you need to work on. Pick one that challenges you and convicts you. There's seven of them. There's even more than that, you know, in the New Testament. We're just looking at Titus chapter 3. What does God want you to work on? That's the first part. The second part of the plan is, this is a portrait of Jesus. As we read God's word and we find out what God is like, it's like we're getting a window, a picture of what Jesus looks like. So imagine we're at a wonderful art museum and, and Titus chapter 3 is, is one room in this big museum where they have a real picture of Jesus. And we're so excited. We want to get to, we want to be in that room. And this picture, you know, the guy describing it says, uh, look at this feature on this artwork. This is how Jesus is. And this is his attitude. Remember, this is what Jesus did. And it's just wonderful to meditate on. Think of these seven actions as a glimpse into how has God been with us and what is he like? So let it be a portrait and pick one uh, that you can apply. And if you do that, it's okay that there's seven. You know, no one's getting fired. This is great. There's seven points. That'll be fine. No one's leaving yet. So seven. Seven actions the church can take to influence society. How can we impact our society? Step number one, Titus chapter three, verse one, submission. We submit to authorities. Paul writes, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Remind them. Listen, young Titus, you're going to love these people, and they're going to love you most of the time. You're going to love them, and you're going to have to remind them. You're going to have to tell them something that you've told them before, and you're going to have to remind them, and they're going to need that reminder because they're not always going to be on board. They're not always going to be applying this to their life. Number one, you're going to have to remind them to submit to authority. It's going to be easy to not want to submit to authority, right? Isn't it easy? Now listen, how many of you trust the government? Okay, don't answer. But you know that the Word of God says... Submit to the government, submit to the authorities. Paul writes more about this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. You can go study that on your own. I put the, by the way, on your outline, there's more passages under each note than we're going to be able to read today. So if you, you know, if you want to meditate on any of those, you can go back and look at, at those verses. 
We're not going to look at Romans 13 because it's just too much. It's like its own sermon to talk about how to submit to the government and how that works and all that. But I want to give you a glimpse of Paul. Paul had to submit to authority that was wrong. Paul had to submit to authority when it was tough. Paul had to do it when they were in the wrong, he was in the right, and it did not feel good. So I want to, I want to turn you to Acts chapter 22, verse 30. Acts chapter 22, verse 30, we have Luke's account. A lot of it, you know, the last parts are about Paul's life and his ministry. Acts chapter 22, there's this commander named Claudius, a Roman commander. He takes Paul into custody. There's this big fight and dispute and all these things. He takes him into custody and he realizes, I'm going to have to get to the bottom of this because there's some Jewish leaders that really don't like Paul. They want Paul to be killed. They want him to get stoned and not the Colorado stoned, the dead stoned. They want, to, they want him to be dead. And so Claudius takes him in. He takes him into custody. He's not in prison yet, but he takes him into custody and he's trying to figure it out. And so the next day, verse 30, since he, he is Claudius, the Roman commander, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him. That doesn't mean he just let him go. It means he was no longer imprisoned, but he was in his custody, in his care. He released them and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. If you don't know who these are, if you're new to church, chief priests are like the, uh, the religious leaders that also had political power in this culture. And the Sanhedrin was like a council. So think of it like a city council. The Sanhedrin was like a group of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Um, uh, you know, it had the high priest in there. It was a group of the top leaders. So the Sanhedrin was like the official council that determined right and wrong in cases. They were like the Supreme Court for their culture. And so Claudius is like, listen, we got to get to the bottom of this. I want the top guys. I want the Supreme Court. I want it tomorrow. I want it right now. They weren't even ready for this. I want it tomorrow. I want you to do it. So he brought Paul down and placed him before him. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. So he looks at them. He knows this is his moment. I'm going I'm to tell him the truth. I'm defending myself. I have done what I knew was right up until this day. The high priest, Ananias, verse 2, ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. So he's there and he speaks up. Now, you got to know a little background. There's a, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus. He lived in the first century. Josephus actually wrote about Ananias, this high priest. He wrote about this guy and he said this guy was insolent. He was greedy. He was a harsh, horrible guy. I, I want to quote him. Insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. Quoting Josephus. That's what was said about this high priest Ananias. Ananias hears Paul talk first. Now, Ananias felt like he should talk first. You should only speak when spoken to. So Paul speaks up and Ananias ordered those to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law and yet in violation of the law. Are you ordering me to be struck? So Paul gets slapped and then claps back, as the kids say. He talks back and he says, whoa, how could you? You are evil and wrong. What's really interesting about this is if you look at the Gospel of John, this same thing happened to Jesus. 
Jesus, when he got arrested on the Passion Week, he stands before him and the guy's talking to him and Jesus gets in and he goes, if I've done something wrong, then why don't you accuse me of that? But if I've not done anything wrong, why are you doing this? Why are you slapping me? Why are you accusing me? So same thing happened to Jesus. So those standing nearby, verse 4, do you dare revile God's high priest? And then pay attention to verse 5. For I did, not, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul didn't know that Ananias was the chief priest. Now, chief priests are dressed like chief priests. But they, remember, this is the very next day. And if you know a little thing about Paul, most likely it makes perfect sense internally with the text. It makes sense with church history. Paul likely had eyesight problems. He had issues with his eyes. So you got to imagine, Paul's standing there, there's a bunch of guys, he doesn't see Ananias, he doesn't see his chief priestly gowns on, you know, he doesn't know that he's a chief priest, all he hears is this voice standing out, and he like yells at him, and then he finds out, this is the chief priest. And in Exodus chapter 22, what he quotes, God says, you don't speak against the rulers of your people. And so Paul humbles himself, even though he just got slapped and was in the right, and Ananias is a horrible, evil man, and he was in the wrong, He humbles himself and submits to this authority even though they're wrong, even though they're doing the wrong thing. So Paul knows what it's like to submit to authority when it's hard, when they're in the wrong. He understands how to honor authority even though they're not righteous. And that's a sermon, but there's three things about submitting to authority that is clear in the Scripture. Submission is essential in following Christ. You cannot be a faithful follower of Christ if you don't know submission, if you don't apply submission, if you do not submit to the authorities around you. Number two is submission requires faith. In order for you to submit, you have to believe that God's going to take care of it. Uh, Peter's letter where he talks about how Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father who's just, even though he was submitting himself to these local authorities and being wrongly accused, how could he submit himself to evil men? He's the Son of God. He created them. It's because submission is essential to Christianity, and he, his faith was in God, not in, well, I'm only going to submit when I agree with them. That's not really submission. And so submission is so important It requires faith, and if you look back at Titus chapter 3, verse 1, submission is how we prepare ourselves for good works. Uh, Notice how the verse says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Now, you don't know this in the English, but this, this phrasing is all pulled together, and part of this being ready for every good work is being submissive to authority. Do you know that if you are in rebellion... You are going to be in the wrong spot, not able for every good work that God wants you to do. You're just not going to be in the right place. You're going to be at the the wrong place at the wrong time if you're not in submission. So this, this deals in all of life, submitting to the government, submitting to authority, submitting to the, like, teachers, those that are over you, that are placed over you, children, submitting to your parents, wives, submitting to your husbands, Christian brothers and sisters, submitting to one another. I know this is easy for me to say, but submitting to your elders, uh, that's all part of God's design and plan. And if we are not submitting to those that God has put into place, whether we like it or not, 
then we are not doing what God has said. Now, I know there's questions about, do you submit to everyone just because they have a title? And if you go and read Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, one of the elements of that is these were put into place for good. That doesn't include tyrants. It's not including you sin. If someone in authority tells you to sin, you don't have to sin because they're abusing their authority. God has not delegated them the authority to call you to sin. So you don't have to sin. And not everybody that has a title is technically an authority over you that's for righteousness and goodness. That's a whole sermon on its own. But we can't use excuses for when we should submit. There are many examples in our lives where we should submit to the authorities that are placed over us. That is how we're going to influence society. As a Christian people, we want to be known in our community for submitting to authority. Why? It's not a preference. It's not how I was raised. It's not part of anything about me personally. It is in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. It is in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Jesus demonstrated submitting to authority. Submission is part of God's plan. There's no way to escape submission. And if we're going to make a difference out in the world, these non-believers, when we submit to authority, when we obey, when we honor people, it makes a difference. That is us being the light and salt of Jesus. So um, that's the easy stuff. We'll, we'll keep going to the hard stuff. Number two, so we impact our society through uh, submitting to authorities. Number two is through gentleness. We show gentleness. To slander no one, he continues on, verse 2, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Slander no one is, is also translated, don't speak evil of anybody. So part of the way that we influence society is not to be a gossiping person, not to be a slanderous person, not to be talking negatively about others. Avoid fighting is also translated avoid quarreling or uh, peaceable, to be peaceable, to try to make peace between people, uh, to be kind. Be kind, if I were to explain it to kids, it's, it's actually easier to define these words with kids. Kind, this word kind means like be polite. When you're with someone, just be polite to them. Uh, be polite with the people around you. All these elements in verse 2 demonstrate gentleness. That's why he ends with, he didn't have to use always showing. He didn't have to use that word always. Always showing gentleness to all people. So being gentle with others is how we, um, is how we influence them. And one of the reasons why we show, we always show gentleness is because we were in their place once. We need God's gentleness, uh, which brings us to verse 3, which is the third part staying humble. Part of the way we influence the world is through humility. Verse 3, Paul continues. That's when he says four, he's continuing on from verse 2. Why do we always show gentleness? Why are we this way with the people around us? For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. That's a, that's a harsh list. I want you to just imagine that the Apostle Paul is saying, we were like this, including me. We were this way. We look at people not in the wrong that, we're do that they're doing, but when we view people, we look at them as like a younger us, an us without Jesus. Jesus. 
What were you like without Jesus? And even more pointedly, what are you like today without Jesus? When you're not walking in the Spirit, what are you like when you're walking in the flesh? We were this way before Christ. And so look at people, look at them and think, this is how I am without Jesus. Uh, there's a fuller explanation in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The elder James, he's like a, he's an elder, like a, he's a pastor. And he's like the top pastor in uh, Jerusalem. He's, he's like, he's known for being the leader of the leaders, kind of like Peter was with the disciples. And James is in Jerusalem, and James writes his letter, and in his letter, he's so loving to them. He calls them beloved children. Sometimes he doesn't call them beloved children. And James chapter 4 is one of those times. And he's very harsh with them. But he's harsh with them because he tells them, humble yourselves because this is what you are like today without Christ. This is why you fight and quarrel because when you're walking in the flesh, you can be, uh, you can be pretty sinful. So the, the principle from those kind of verses is if we don't have an accurate picture of ourselves, we won't have a compassionate perspective of others. If we don't see ourselves for who we truly are, and there's parts of that. Our identity is in Christ, but also without Christ we can do nothing. You know, when, he, when Jesus told his disciples that after they were believers, without me you can do nothing. If we see ourselves that if we're walking in the flesh, we can be evil and we sin. When we are see ourselves accurately, we can look on other people with compassion because we can see them and go, me too. I'm the same way. I need just as much gentleness and compassion that you do. Um, and so we need an accurate picture of ourselves. So we stay humble. And number four, have mercy. We have mercy with people. Verse four, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration, a renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of theology in verses 4 and 5 about regeneration, about justification, how we stand before God. But I just want to highlight when it says, God did this for us, abounding in mercy. It was because of His mercy toward us. Uh, but, uh, verse 5, but according to His mercy. How has God been merciful with you? Think about how merciful God is with you. Um, in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, it's quoting Jesus. Be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. In uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. So we show mercy just like God has been merciful with us. God desires for a mercy cycle. The idea is God has been merciful with us and we think of that mercy and we're merciful with others and that's meant to start something. God wants to start a movement in the society where his characteristics, his attributes are demonstrated because it's God's mercy, his kindness, his gentleness that leads people toward repentance. That, that freedom gives people the sense of I need help is their hope. And God's mercy and compassion demonstrates hope. He's willing to forgive a horrible sinner like me. He's willing to do that for people like that. 
He's willing to love the least of these. That opens people up uh, to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, um, don't you know that it was God's kindness toward you that led you to repentance? God's kindness, His mercy, His gentleness leads us to repentance. So, uh, so we, we are merciful. Number five, we give generously. Verse six, he says, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Those two words, poured out and abundantly, God has been so generous with us. He has given us more than what we need. He's, he's poured out his spirit. He's given us power and gifts. He's given us mercy. He's given us strength. He gives us above and beyond just what we need. That kind of generosity is meant to flow through us, not just stop at us, right? We're not meant to be a basin. We're kind of meant to be a conduit to where we are the ones bringing that and demonstrating that to the people around us. So um, I think of Paul uh, when he did not quote the Gospels. We don't find this quote in the Gospels, but Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it's not on the screen, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In God's economy, it's better that we give than receive. And so his desire is that we're generous. And when we're generous, we influence the world. We, we impact the world. And so give generously. Number six, be persistent. This saying is trustworthy. Paul doesn't always start his sentences like that. He probably did this because he knew he, who he was writing to. He was writing to Titus. Titus is a young pastor. And uh, pastors are going to need this kind of encouragement uh, because it's going to be difficult. Uh, there are going to be times when you want to give up and you want to quit. So he's not changing gears. He's in the same lane. He's talking about how you need to remind the people how to live and how to influence the people around him. But he stops and he interjects this. This is a trustworthy statement. I need you to really count on this, Titus, because you're going to doubt this. This is a trustworthy This is saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. As a leader, your insistence will help them be persistent. You have to insist on these things over and over. Well, I can tell you as a pastor, I think I'm starting to understand this. You know, you, you could be around people and you can be like, hey, um, I think we should do this thing or, or let's all agree to do this thing. And everybody's like, yes, let's do it. Everybody agrees on it. And then the very next week, no one's doing it. And you're like, hold on, hold on. I, th I thought we all agreed we're going to do this. Oh, yes, yes, we're going to so do that. And then the next week, nothing gets done. And you start to doubt yourself. Am I speaking English? Do they speak English? What is happening? I thought this was so clear. Everybody agrees with it, but no one's doing it. There are going to be times when you're going to have to be insistent on these things because people are going to drift. They're going to be like, I don't know. People will disagree with you. Can you believe this, that people disagree with their leaders? I can't believe it. I can't believe it happens. Children disagree with their parents. Why does that ever happen? They don't agree with the leadership. You have to insist on it. They're going to start thinking, you know what? <clears throat> I think my way's better. I'll give you some examples, right? Let's just think of the church in America. God's word could not be more clear. I mean, black and white, clear as day, multiple times throughout the scriptures. 
this is what sexuality is meant to be like. I have created human beings, male and female. This is who you're supposed to be. Also, this is what marriage is supposed to be like between a husband and a wife. This is how you are to love one another. This is how you are to train your children. This is how you, how you are to act in society. Sexuality, marriage, gender could not be clearer in the scriptures. Do you know that there are some churches out there, they do not agree with that. They call themselves a church. They say, we love Christ, we're following Him. And they disagree with the Bible. They disagree with those statements. Why? Because experience, uh, maybe a lack, maybe an ignorance of what the Scripture actually says. Maybe there's a lack of biblical literacy. But people have their own lives and their own experience, and they start, you know, I know it says that about sexuality and gender and all these things. I know it says that, but I have this child or daughter or granddaughter or nephew or cousin or aunt, like in my situation. I have this loved one that I don't, this doesn't match. So what should we do? As a leader, you are going to have to insist on the truth. You will have to tell people over and over again, and you will have to do it. Why? So that they can devote themselves to good works. You are the ones that are doing ministry. If you're going to devote yourselves to the work that God has called you to do, you need leaders that are going to insist on these things and remind you over and over and over again. So, you know, if you ever get upset that I say some of the same things over and over again. Don't email me. I want you to pray. I want you to read Titus chapter 3, verse 8. And I want you to know that I'm, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I have to insist on these things as a preacher of God's word so that you will persist in devoting yourselves to good works. Because the world is going to, it's like sandpaper. It's going to wear you down. It's just going to cut you down and it's going to deceive you and it wants to lead you astray so that you do not do the good works that God has called you to do. And, uh, and we have to insist on these things for you to persist. So be persistent. Um, and number seven, it's a balance to this wisdom. You have to restrain yourself. Not only do you have to be persistent, you also, there's a level of self-control and restraint. Verse nine but avoid foolish debates. And so as you're reading verse 8 and verse, you know, you're reading this thing where he's like, listen, you're going to have to insist on these things, but you're going to have to avoid foolish debates. He's not bringing up another topic. He's giving real life examples. If you're going to be persisting in these things and insisting and preaching and saying, this is the direction we have to go, guess what? You're going to have some people that want to debate with you. There's going to be people out there that go, whoa, 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 I hear this high calling and blah, 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 and I don't agree and I don't like it. You're going to have people that want to debate with you. Well, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with people that want to debate? So he says, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law. Just think the whole Old Testament and everything around their culture. All those words are important in that statement. It's not just a Jewish thing. It covers the Jewish law. It covers the Old Testament, but it's bigger than that. Foolish debates, quarreling, these genial, all these things, disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Um, <clears throat> imagine you're in a business meeting, a council meeting, a committee meeting, or you're at the family dinner table with other people outside of your immediate family, and you're meeting together, and you just think, this is going to be great. We're going to get stuff done. We're going to make decisions. And all of a sudden, two people in that group start debating with each other. 
And at first you're like, okay, okay, not all of us have to agree, disagree, that's totally fine. But within the first couple of minutes, you realize they're debating with each other in such a way that you think to yourself, you, you don't pipe up yet, you know, you're still a Mennonite. You don't say anything. But, but you're thinking it, you're thinking it, and you're thinking, this is going nowhere. I just feel like this guy's arguing with that guy, and I do not see this ending well. This is just not going anywhere. But you're mature, you've grown, you've learned, you've got to listen. So you give them another five minutes, and you just listen to their debates. Well, at first you weren't sure. After the next five minutes, you are 100% sure that it's going nowhere. What do you do? What do you do when you know it's going nowhere? You know it's not going to be profitable for them. You know it's just going to cause a fight. This whole thing is is elevated to a big debate. Paul is telling Titus, listen, you're going to have to deal with this in ministry and in the church. If you want to lead your people, you're going to have to demonstrate this and you're going to have to show them. There are debates that are unprofitable and worthless. Um, Unprofitable means quarrels and disputes that don't help or, or benefit anybody. These arguments are not going to help either side. Um, and worthless, so when I studied the Bible, when I studied to preach, I, I like studying the words, like what they mean and where they've been used and how they've been used in this literature. And when I first read this, I thought, well, that's redundant. Doesn't unprofitable mean worthless? Isn't that the same thing? Why would Paul repeat himself? Well, they don't mean, these two words don't mean exactly the same thing. Unprofitable means you net zero, so you don't gain anything. Worthless, even though in English it doesn't show it, worthless means you lose. You're a negative. You don't net zero. Like you can have a business that nets zero. That's called an unprofitable business. You're not gaining any profit. Well, if you go below that and you're losing money, that's what worthless means. So Paul's saying these arguments... Not only do they not help either side, but they actually take away from what God is calling you to do. That you, you subtract. You're losing things that you need. And so that's why he wants Titus to avoid it because it's not helping. And uh, disputes are not just disagreements. When he says because there are uh, disputes about the law, disputes are more than disagreements They're conflicts that rise out of disagreement. So Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14, to start a conflict is to release a flood, stop the dispute before it breaks out. Honor belongs to the person who ends a dispute, but any fool can get himself into a, and I've been a fool getting my, I've gotten into so many quarrels being a fool. Anybody can get themselves in a quarrel. The way that this word for dispute is used in the scripture is, it's not just a disagreement, It's a disagreement that creates conflict. You know, you can disagree with someone and it doesn't have to be a fight. There doesn't have to be a me against you. You can disagree with someone and it doesn't have to be either you're going or I'm going. It doesn't have to rise to that, but that's what a dispute is. And the point is, foolish debates hinder good works. If as the church you're going to do good works and you're going to make a difference in the society, you have to avoid foolish debates. Back to Titus chapter 3, verse 10. So avoid foolish debates. They're no good. They actually lose. You lose out. Verse 10, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So Paul is trying to give Titus courage because as a young leader, 
you're going to lack courage. You're, you're just going to not understand when's the right time to stand up and all that. And so he's trying to encourage him and tell him, listen, if someone is wanting to fight about this and they're taking away from the gospel message and the mission, you're going to have to avoid that and even reject them um, after a first and second warning. And so remember, a divisive person is not just someone that disagrees with you. It's someone that's causing a conflict out of this disagreement. And we've all experienced this. Um, same scenario, you're in a meeting with other people, you're in a committee meeting, a council meeting, a board meeting, a, some kind of big meeting, and you're, all of a sudden a disagreement arises. There might be someone there that makes the disagreement the sticking point. And man, it may not be the most important thing, but they're going to raise it to the most important thing. And if we can't agree on this, we ain't agreeing on nothing. Like that's the attitude. You don't just kick them out. You don't say, oh, that person's a divisive person. You give them a first and second warning. Be gentle with them. Tell them, you know what? I, I don't know that this, this decision is really going to move the ball forward. I don't know that this, this disagreement's going to going to help us. I think we should table this. I think we should move on from this. Give them a first and second warning. Everybody gets passionate sometimes and uptight and here's my cause and I want to hear it. But you have to be gentle, showing gentleness with all people. Show gentle with them. Give them a first and second warning. Let them know that this is creating a conflict and an argument that's unnecessary. You could do this in marriage. You can do this on any board or council meeting, any team that you're on. You can try to diffuse the situation, you know, cut the wick, let's keep this bomb from going off. Uh, that's Paul's encouragement. So if you're going to do good works, you have to be able to restrain yourself and avoid these debates and these disputes, these conflicts, because they're not going to get you anywhere. It's going to stop the mission. And all seven of these, I know there are a lot, all seven of them are important for us to be the church to be God's hands and feet. If we're going to influence the society, we have to demonstrate these. We have to take these seven actions and apply them uh, because this is God's plan. This was God's design for how we impact the world. So thank you for sitting through that. I know Titus is a lot. I'm sad and happy that we're done with Titus. Uh, if you read the rest of Titus, uh, the rest of it's Paul's personal letter to Titus, he has responsibilities to take care of. There's people involved. It's a, it's a real letter to real people. And uh, it's been a real joy thinking through the letter of Titus with you. This is God's blueprint for how the church is meant to be healthy, fruitful, to be effective. And uh, these last parts are really about how we influence those outside the church. So let's pray and uh, then we'll go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your letter to Titus. All scripture is inspired by you. It's, it's God-breathed. We know to disagree with it or disobey it or disregard it is to do that to you, and uh, we do not want to disobey you. We don't want to be ignorant. We don't want to fall short. Um, by your power and grace, we can grow and mature. Help us as a church to apply these seven actions to our, to our own lives Help us to influence Newton and Harvey County and Kansas. Uh, such a wonderful place that you've put us in. Help us to, be, uh, to have an impact on those around us. We love you. You demonstrated all this first. Help us to follow you and imitate these ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.